0: Welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Harmon, who is a seminarian at St. Francis de Sales in Milwaukee, and he's earning his Master's in Divinity. In addition to him being a seminarian, he's written a book called Reality, Volume 1 on Natural Theology, um, and I'm thankful that he's willing to come on and give his faith journey and talk about, you know, his passion for philosophy or wherever he's going to talk about, which I'm sure is going to interlock with uh, his seminarian past. So thank you for coming
1: on. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be, be on here with you.
0: Yeah. So how we got acquainted, and I normally go about this saying, like how we got acquainted is, you know, I've been, we mutually follow each other and I've been, we've been following each other for a while. And I've always just been, and he's one of the people I've always been intrigued by because they always post, you know, thought enriching content. That make you think about um you know the the deeper i guess metaphysics of, of life And so i always appreciated everything that you post and when i saw that you had this book some time ago um i haven't read it yet but it's on my list of material i need to buy and read so i definitely look forward to you know getting this not only to support you but also under also get the understanding of what natural theology is and the approach that you go about uh, discussing that topic so i look forward to reading that but um, let's just jump in. So I know from talking to you before we started, you mentioned that you are revert to the Catholic Church. So why don't you um, tell us your faith journey from you know early ages, middle, and how that led you to
1: your path now? Yeah, I am the prototypical problem we have in the church right now. I grew up in a Catholic family. I altar served. Then I did CCD. I got confirmed and I stopped going to mass. The classic 15 year old, he gets confirmed, he's done. See you later. Um, I always say that I grew up in Southern California, and in high school, I always say that God has a fair amount of competition in terms of distractions, and for about four years, the distractions were winning. So from about 15 to age 19, I wasn't practicing. I kind of did my own thing, chased after various vanities of vanities on the coast of California. And my senior year of high school, things kind of fell apart. I was an athlete. And athletics wasn't really working out. And sort of at the bottom of the barrel, one day I decided to go back to, to church. I walked in into church in the middle of the day. I was kind of fed up with high school. And the priest was in there. He was praying the liturgy of the hours. And he saw me and he recognized me because I'd been there when he was the pastor. And he walked up to me, he prayed over me, and I asked him if I could make a confession. And I made a confession. I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Kevin, there's a lot of things you can work on. Let's pick one or two to work on initially. And that began the reversion process. And one of the things I recognized early on in the reversion is growing up, I was sort of an emotive Catholic. I was driven by affectations and emotions. And I knew when I reverted that I needed to have stronger intellectual foundations. Mike Tyson has that famous line that everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And in life, if you don't have a strong intellectual foundation, those effective emotive responses to things eventually dry up. John Toller talks about the first dark night of the soul, and one of the marks of it is the effective dimension of the spiritual life isn't there. So I knew when I reverted that I needed to study and I needed to find intellectual foundations. And the first two people I turned to were St. Anthony of Padua and St. Alphonsus. And those two are not necessarily systematic theologians. Definitely St. Anthony of Padua had some talents in it because of his Augustinian background, and he was well-versed in Peter Lombard. But they were more focused on the spiritual life. St. Alphonsus calls it the science of the saints. It's how do you live the gospel in your daily life. And so I studied them intensely and began practicing the faith again. That took me to about the age of 23. I decided to move to Wisconsin and pursue my degree in accounting and eventually graduated with a degree in accounting. And as this was all happening, there was an intense desire within my heart that had been there for a while to give myself entirely to God in unmediated fashion. When I talk to guys about vocations, I always tell them that everyone is called to give themselves to God entirely. Everyone has this universal call to holiness. What a guy has to figure out is, is it going to be mediated through his marriage, through giving himself to his his family, making the self-gift of himself to his child when he wakes you up at three in the morning or to his wife? Or is it going to be directly to God, eyelid to eyelid in that intense fashion that the religious and the priesthood has to give himself directly to God? And I felt called to give myself directly to God. And that was what eventually led to me being in seminary and where I am now.
0: Awesome. Awesome recap, man. I'm I'm glad to be speaking with a a seminarian, an active seminarian, too. So all throughout your faith journey from your early ages to now, did you have any memorable moments or something that came alive for you that, you know, clicked or you had some sort of sudden epiphany or, or something like that that made the faith come alive, a person maybe?
1: I think reading St. Anthony of Padua, he he was a charismatic personality. He had sort of this majestic aura to him. And when I read him, I could sort of feel that in his in his writings. There was something about him that I found intriguing. And I think looking back on it, it was the integrity of his life, that what he preached is what he lived. He talked a lot about that in his homilies that he gave to his friars, is you have to Matched your words with your actions. He always said, your hand has to correspond to your mouth. There cannot be dissonance. And I think he was the one that sort of brought forth the seeds that would flower later on in my spiritual journey. Okay, So
0: to you, St. Pedro is more than just a saint to go to when you lose something. <laughs>
1: Yes, indeed, and it is ironic because I am known now as this Thomas. But at the foundational level of my spiritual life, there is this Franciscan influence, and my Franciscan friends always remind me of this.
0: <laughs> well, well, that's good to know.
1: Somebody using
0: somebody actually has a, a deep. You know, I mean you're the first person I ever met who actually has a, a relationship and devotion to Saint Anthony Padua, besides just coming to him for losing stuff. <laughs> so that's good. So. I mean, you are reverting, you're a seminarian, all to great accomplishments, and what would you say to somebody who probably discerned in the Catholic Church or who was thinking about converting?
1: I would tell them the importance of truth. It, Bishop Barron talks about the three great things, truth, beauty, and goodness, and a, a lot of people emphasize beauty and goodness, and I do not mean to diminish them. But for the intellectuals out there who are interested in Catholicism, they should really dive into the tradition, the church fathers, the scholastics, the sacred scriptures, the commentaries that the church has written on them over the years. The churchmen have written on scripture and really anchor themselves in truth. And they shouldn't be afraid of that. That You can be Catholic because it is true. And that's a very good reason to be Catholic. Right, right. That's a good
0: Definitely good advice to give somebody who's discerning the Catholic Church. Who, that's going to be very beneficial to a lot of people. RCA season is coming up, so it's going to be good. And so, knowing you and knowing the content that you post and knowing the book that you have, and, and you mentioned that you have, you know, you desired intellectual foundations in Catholicism. And you, you, you tell me that you really appreciate scholasticism. So tell me, how'd you get involved
1: in this scholastic movement and scholastic thought of philosophy? Yeah, I first came across scholasticism my second semester of seminary. There's a legendary philosophy teacher where I take class, and he's, he'd studied at Notre Dame under Ralph McInerney and some of the big Thomists, and he was the, intro, the introduction in my life to Thomism. And what I liked about Thomism immediately was it was a systematic and coherent school of thought that has precision and has depth and has clarity. And it sort of enthralled me, but it also brought about a problem. One cannot simply pick up Thomas, read him, and understand him, because Thomas has this whole metaphysical framework and worldview. And so I turned towards what I call Thomistic commentators. These are people that explain Thomas, have commented on him, some of the big names in the modern world are Edward Phaser, Brian Davies, Thomas Joseph White. And I turned to sort of these Thomistic commentators, and I eventually came across one, the, one of the more famous ones named Reginald Garrigou-Lagrange. He was a Dominican in the 20th century, and he was one of the foremost proponents of what is called neoscholasticism. And neoscholasticism was the church's response to what she deemed were errors of the modern world, commonly called modernism. And the Neoscholastics tried to respond to that by turning to Thomas, turning to Aristotle, and turning to the tradition. And they produced what were called theology manuals. And it was reading the manuals, and it was reading Garrigou-Lagrange, and some of the modern Neoscholastics or people that work within the Neoscholastic framework, especially David Oderberg, that really got me educated in Thomism and interested in Thomism. And it sort of just continued to flourish. Okay, so you
0: lead, you lay right into the next question, which was, which is, what are some challenges that you, you know, noticed when you first started studying scholasticism or neo-scholasticism?
1: Besides understanding Thomas, one issue that occasionally crops up is neo-scholasticism is somewhat controversial now. After the Second Vatican Council, neo-scholasticism waned a bit. So, if you get the title of a neo-scholastic attributed to you, you face some level of I don't wanna say persecution, that would be too strong of a word, but there's some level of suspicion and there's some level of, hmm, that's interesting, he's a neo-scholastic. And the reality of my book eventually came about as sort of my response to this, that ultimately you can say what you want about neo-scholasticism, you can call the neo names if you want, you can say all these things, but eventually you gotta buckle up your chin strap and you gotta take the playing field. And neoscholasticism should ultimately ju- be judged on whether or not it is true. Does it conform to reality? Does it conform to sacred scripture? Does it conform to the tradition? And my book, in many ways, was here's my presentation of neoscholasticism as best as I can, to my understanding. And I'll just put that out there. And let's get the conversation to be less polemic and let's analyze neoscholasticism on its merits of truth.
0: So is neo-scholasticism more than just, I guess when I read um, and I think about the, the ancient cathedral schools and the environment where scholasticism came out of, is it more than just the like, Q&A format and now uh, objection and answer and an objection and answer, or is it more to it than that?
1: It's mostly the Q&A format. If you look at the manuals, the most famous manual now is called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Little God, And if you look at it, it's very much, There's an answer. There's a question. There's an answer. Usually they'll have a proof from sacred scripture, a proof from the church fathers, and then they move on. So it's extraordinarily concise. It's extraordinarily efficient, which is part of the reason why I liked it. When you're a diocesan seminarian, you recognize that you have six years to try and study as much as you can. And it's true that in a parish, you'll have time to study further afterwards, but you don't have as much time as an academic. And so sort of the efficiency of neo-scholasticism really appealed to me. It doesn't waste words. It's not fluffy. That's why some people don't like it. It's extraordinarily concise and dense.
0: Right, right. That's good. So the next part is, what are some things that you've gained from, you know, studying scholasticism?
1: I would say one of the things I have gained is... A calmer demeanor. When scholasticism is done right, it's a very measured school. It tries to make distinctions, it tries to analyze terms, it tries not to erupt in a reaction. Now, obviously, you could point to various scholastics in history who have failed badly in this regard. But scholasticism done properly, I think, follows sort of St. Thomas's mindset of calm, analytical be patient, try and get to the root of issues. And as I have studied scholasticism more and more, I have noticed that the way I approach problems is much calmer, much more measured, much more sophisticated than it was prior to scholasticism. I think when
0: I've, um, I mean, I, don't, I haven't read the summa in its entirety, but I have the beginner to begin into the summa and it's and it has like um i mean like you said it is even though it's not the the traditional one written from saint thomas aquinas but it is very you know analytical and you know very sophisticated in its arguments and questions and so whenever whenever i read it just picking it up randomly you know i do find a level of um you know a beauty and like goodness in it when i read it because it's it, it gears your mind toward, you know, how to effectively, you know, address arguments in a reasoned and like rational way, if that makes yeah. sense.
1: Yeah. And it's really good when it's done right in being open to questions. When I've talked to confirmation classes, one of the things that the students really like is when you listen to their questions and you take their questions seriously. Right. And scholasticism should, when it's done right, be very respectful of opposing positions. It should try and present them fairly. It's going to try and refute them, obviously. But it should present them fairly, give them their time, and then try and deal with them if it's able to. All
0: right. All right. That's, a good, that's a good little point about uh, scholasticism. So the last question is, how have you, you, know, how have you used your Catholic faith in studying scholasticism
1: on how have you weaved the two together? Yeah, I have, I, in the about chapter of my first book, I make sort of a bold claim and I kind of smirked when I made it. And that is that I intended the reality series to be a defense of the entirety of the Catholic faith. And I argue sort of, well, I don't argue, I just mentioned that I think scholasticism can give a defense of the entirety of the Catholic faith. It is a school of thought that has been ingrained within the tradition. If you look at Vatican I and you look at Trent, they are operating within scholastic principles. When we talk about sacraments, we talk about matter and form of sacraments. Those are scholastic metaphysics. So Catholicism and scholasticism have become greatly entwined. It's one of the critiques of it. People think that Aristotle sort of hijacked the church. So a scholastic who knows the school of thought very well will also then know the teachings of the Catholic Church very well. And he'll be able to see sort of the underlying philosophical principles that exist within Catholic teaching. And he'll be able to use a greater rigor and sort of conceptual clarity when he examines dogmas and various teachings of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm.
0: So basically what you're saying is you
1: know, the faith
0: catholic faith and you know scholasticism you know they work harmoniously together
1: and yeah there was a saying amongst the scholastics that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology that it sort of is the assistant it assists theology it helps theology make clear certain concepts and when you see like thomas's trinitarian analysis and he uses these philosophical tools he's got a dogma that he's dealing with and then he uses his philosophical tools to try and understand it as well as he can mm-hmm. so they do they work together and they're inter, not interchangeable but they assist one another flow from one another
0: okay well thank you for sharing the information about your reversion story back to the catholic church and your passion for scholastic philosophy Well this is gonna conclude this episode of Saintly Witnesses and tune in next week when we interview our next guest.